Oh, that's better. I can hear you better. I really want to use my headphones, Me but too. I could not figure out how to get it to work. Because I feel like I'm getting, you guys are getting some feedback off my microphone. I hear a little. I'm not. I hear that every once in a while. I don't hear it consistently. As an AV professional, it bothers me greatly. Ah. <laughs> From Atlanta, where our gay pride doesn't need a parade. It's year-round, girl! John made me say it. John wrote it right here. I am his teeny little shoulder monkey. And about the right size, too. I could fit right in a pocket. It's the Whole World Improv Podcast, brought to you by Whole World Improv Theater, Atlanta's original home of improv. Here are your hosts, artistic director Chip Powell and a man who taught his teenage daughter to drive by Atlanta rules, especially in small towns and rural areas. John Mihalik. Hmm. What, what does that mean, though? Because uh, in Atlanta, John, I don't notice any rules to the road. I'm sorry. You guys really you scare the crap out of me. I like every minute, Atlanteans. Is that what you're called? I'm sorry. I'm not trying to hate on you guys. I learned how to drive in Manhattan. There's a rhythm there, and uh, here, no, no, there's nothing, nothing like that here. But I'll still stay at Biddy for two years. Well, I'm alive. Here, I'm here. No, I'm alive and I'm driving. Just drowning out the terrified screams in my brain with the smooth sounds of the Bee Gees on the radio. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This is the Whole World Improv Theater podcast. This is Jamie Halleck, and with me is our artistic director, co-host, and producer. Chip, we're really excited to talk to some of these people we got here today. Oh yeah, this you know, is a good one. We've had a lot of good ones, but it's got Jenny Andrews with us today. And we also have Peter, alumni, founding members of Whole World Improv. Guys, say hey. Am I really a founding member? I think I came on after I know when I came in, the it crowd was Jim and Lance and Anna and Jenny. But I say founding member because, you know, when Whole World hit and took off, yeah. you're in all the photographs that we have that we hang on the wall for the history. Oh, yeah. When we built the stage yeah, behind you now, that I guess you could be a founding member if you or at least watched while it was being built. <laughs> right, Thomas. <laughs> he just watched. Hammer that nail, girl! Bill, what's your origin? Where did you introduce yourself to the whole world? So when I joined Whole World Theater, they were in that little space across from what was then Dad's Garage. And I was like kind of jonesing. I was interning at another theater company, but I was a little bit jonesing for the old improv because I had done it before. I wanted to get back. And I go in there. The first time I met Lance, he was dressed in a Mighty Morphin Power Rangers outfit. <laughs> So he was the Red Power Ranger, and he would go and do birthday parties as the Red Power Ranger. Lance has some martial arts training, if you could call Taekwondo martial arts. And that's just for Lance right there. And he would, you know, he would go to birthday parties and go, hi I'm the Red Power Ranger. Hi-yah, hi-yah, hi-yah. And so he was also the biggest dick I had ever met. Just an absolute asshole, but hilarious in only the way Lance could be. Yeah. Yeah. He, would be he would just be the worst, and you go, ha, 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 it's Lance. Oh, yeah. And also, I remember, of course, uh, meeting Jenny. Now, I was used to strong uh, female comedians from my time doing, you know, improv in other places. Uh, it's a place, unlike, I think, stand-up comedy, where women are really encouraged to participate. 
so I was used to that, but I had no idea when Jenny and Anna came along what that actually looked like. These were women who were not afraid to look ridiculous, to look goofy, to do the most non-feminine, non-attractive things you could possibly imagine. And, you know, they just proved that girls can be just as gross as guys. Light their farts on fire. Yeah, just <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so I was really impressed. And then, of course, uh, one other cast member I want to mention from earlier in that time was Wes Kennemore. Oh, yeah. When I saw Wes Kennemore, it was like I was jealous because he would just stand there and do nothing in the scene. And I was rolling on the floor laughing. He would just lift an eyebrow and I'd be cackling. I was like, how does he do this? So eventually I got to know him and uh, the whole gang. I went over there just because it was free, but you could donate money if you wanted to. And I'm my father's child. I'm like, free? That sounds fantastic. And so I went over there and, and got involved with some free jams and eventually gave my entire life over to it. I, I basically asked my family to give money one Christmas to Whole World. So basically to wrap it all up, I joined because I wanted to do free improv jams and I stayed because we started to do shows. Yeah. And that's what I was looking for, to get up in front of people again. Jenny, you're in that original photograph. Take us all the way back. How did you get involved? So I got involved because I was working at Roaster's Rotisserie, where Webster was working, but we were working at two separate locations. But the owner was like, hey, you're pretty funny. You should do improv. And I was like, what the fuck is improv? I didn't even know what it was. Like a lot of people, I just thought it was like stand-up comedy, which it obviously isn't. But I was like, yeah, okay, sure. So I called David Webster on the phone, and he just, the way he was, he sold it. You know, he sold it to me. He was like, so we got this groovy idea that I'm just going to, you know, we're going to have this group of people and we're just going to kind of like jam together and write stuff. I was like, yeah, okay. I was 24 at the time. So I was, sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm in. And then we went down to the, um, that space at Eddie's Attic and I got my first taste of improv. And I just remember Lance, I was just like, that guy's really funny. But I also remember him being like, I'll never get a word in edgewise with that guy, which still rings true today. But it was just kind of surreal in a way because it felt like what I was supposed to be doing. It felt like, yeah, this feels like, this feels important. For me, as I wanted to be an actress. I've wanted to be an actress my whole life. So it wasn't like I was just jumping into something that I had no innate passion for anyway. So jumping in was scary, but it was cool because it wasn't like anything that I'd ever seen or done because it, it was so based on like this different philosophy from even what I think the majority of people think improv is anyway, which would be like, whose line is it anyway? Certainly at that time. But even that, it wasn't that at all. It was more like this storytelling. And I know that there's obviously history behind how it works with, you know, Second City and all that stuff, which has been around for ages and ages. So improv itself and that sort of organic nature of it certainly wasn't anything new, but it definitely was to me. So it was just something that I stuck with. Like we all just kind of kept going week after week. We would just show up. We weren't being paid. We just showed up and we just kind of like, started doing this improv thing based on David Webster's vision of how he wanted this improv troupe to be born in Atlanta. 
And he was so convincing and he was so good at teaching and bringing out of us, I think, what all of our strengths were. It was just a family. We just sort of grew as a family and we stuck together for years and years and committed to this thing that I don't think any of us even knew what we were doing or where it was going. And we had this tiny little room in what is essentially now what was the original dad's garage was our first space. But anyway, it was this teeny tiny little room in an office building and we put carpet in it and had dump for seats and like a tiny little stage. But really, we used the whole space as the stage. It wasn't like a black box. It was just a room that we made into sort of like this imaginary place. It just kind of evolved from there and then more people came in and then obviously it became more of like, oh, we're this company now and we have jobs to do to support this company. Of course, again, no one was paid, but we all just kind of jumped in and were committed to doing that because we loved what we were doing and we were so thrilled to be there. I want to build on what Jenny said. I had been in improv troops before, so I wasn't that unfamiliar with it. I had been in one in South Carolina before I moved to Atlanta. I was working at Actors Express, which was in the space that Dad's Garage was in before they moved across town near the train tracks. And I remember being struck at how touchy-feely the whole thing with Webster was. Like, man, we it was like something. We were in a groove that nobody else understood. Many of the other comedians and improv actors I've been around, there was a little bit of like competition there. You could consider, you know, it was a little bit of every person out for themselves. But with Webster, you got the sense that it was a real family. You know, I am one of the most cynical people on the planet and not very trusting. And it took a long time for me to let my walls down and, you know, give in to Web. (laughs) and allow myself to be part of this kind of this company that really made a sort of a whole world in ourselves. We were like 20 people who comprise an entire world. Of course, David Webster was instrumental in making that happen, in giving us the tools to let our barriers down, interact with each other, and create this safe space for each other. I think at one point, Creative Loafing reviewed one of our shows and told us we had an uncanny ant-like telepathy. I'll never forget that quote because it was exactly what we were like. Our instincts for each other were so finely tuned that we could do improv that other people, you know, would probably come and marvel at. They're like, how did you guys, did you guys prepare that? You know, we were just so in tune with each other. It made it really good. Yeah. I mean, he was smart in getting a bunch of young folks eager to be on stage and make a career out of it. And, you know, what Phil was saying about like just how everybody was so in tune with each other, that was a very special thing that I think not a lot of people could say that they had that. in in an improv troupe and yeah we were small so that obviously that makes a big difference and it you know wasn't some known entity where we just had people in and out in and out in and out students in students out this group and then that group and then this group and then that group and then each little subset of groups is like well they're close and it was just us and we became so close to each other that To this day, each and every one of you, and, you know, from all, from probably the first 20 years, I still consider family. Like, it it just, it would be so bizarre to me to not see any of you in the street and just be like, oh my God, like seeing a family member. Yeah. It's, that's to me, the greatest takeaway from all of it. Yeah, a lot of folks have been uh, saying that we had lightning in a bottle, like we were 
you know, all is so tight. And it's interesting to have a poor group of people that committed at a young age. Hey there, did you know that Whole World is opening up for live shows again? Yeah, just as the whole world is opening up for everything. Good. <laughs> Join us in a safe, socially distant pod for some great improv and lots of laughs. We're still following the CDC guidelines to ensure that everyone has a great time. But honestly, what does the CDC know? If they were really on their game, The Walking Dead would have ended by season two. There's hand sanitizer galore and it's pretty airy. No need to hug or touch anyone. Who wants to do that? You guys talked about how you mesh. Do you think that was a just from the personalities of the people, or was that something that developed through the training? Uh, David Webster, yeah, hundred percent, was a guru. Yeah, and yeah. In some of the best sense of that word, and you know, also some of the some of the negative connotations of that as well. Mm-hmm. Like without him, it would not have been possible. One thing a guru does is able to break down your sense of individuality and let you open yourself up to be part of something greater. And that's exactly what we did. Yes, uh, I, I think that's the reason that. why we connected so well. And also, what Webster also taught us was to love each other. Yeah. It sounds super corny. It sounds super sappy, but we loved each other. We loved being in scenes. That's not to say there wasn't jealousy. Like, oh my God, how come Jenny's in this scene and I'm not in that scene? You know, uh, I would have set lists where I would count the number of scenes I was in. (laughs) I think we all just, we all did that (laughs) for sure. Yeah, I would second that for sure. I think that if it weren't for him, not even just the actual fact that it was him, but if it weren't, him and let's say it was someone else it just wouldn't have been the same thing there's no way i mean we were all perfectly young and ripe and maybe that was just that sort of right place at the right time but certainly wouldn't have been possible without him no way and also what we can't completely dismiss the talent of the people that got involved yeah i'm sure there were people that came into our classes into our jam sessions that did not make it onto the main stage i mean there was a couple of years there where you getting into the main stage was literally impossible Yeah, we would gather new members at the rate of like one or two a year. There was a big push, I think, where Sarah, Annie and Michael Sweeney, a little spot where, you know, Rob Pointer and Annie came in and like these and Kaylin and these are like the new people. Yeah. You know, and you're like, wow, uh, there's so many people here now. And then, of course, later on, it became to be there was actually an apprentice group who did great shows on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know, that type of thing. But we the talent was there. You can't deny that Jenny and Lance were like superstars of Whole World. That's who you came to see when we first started out. Webster was really good at that. I mean, that was the one great thing about him. He really did bring us all together. I think one of the reasons why everybody liked the show, like audience members liked the show so much is that sense of community we had with each other. And it wasn't just jokes. Right. Like we did a lot of, I mean, two person scene was like the building block of our games. Right. You know, it was a lot more like theater improv where you teach in order to learn how to relate to somebody, listen to somebody, um, connect with them and form a bond on stage. And we did that. And that's why I think one of the reasons why people thought we were so funny is there was emotion there. You know, there was actual heartfelt emotion and that will drive comedy a lot further than just making cracks about oh my god i'm stuck in a wind tunnel whoa well we were all so taught from a very early stage that we weren't talking heads 
that was drilled within us. And then if you did that, you were an asshole and you were a horrible scene partner and you'd be shunned, right? So I think that just sort of stuck with all of us. We really trained on that. You are only as good as your partner. That's basically how we were all taught to do improv. And so it's not like, look at me, look at me, even though we are all guilty of doing it. But, you know, if you see any improv out there, it's so often just that like a funny person and enough, maybe a funnier person. It's very cerebral. Yes. Very it's extremely cerebral. cerebral and not so emotional. Yeah. And, you know, I have done improv in other companies in Atlanta and it's been fun for sure, but it's so different from the way I was, you know, raised, quote unquote, that it never felt like me, like my best improv. I hated being like, look, I can tell a joke. Look how funny I am. And <laughs> it, I mean, it, it can work and it can be good, but it just gets really old after a while for me personally to perform that way. So when I got the chance to come back to Whole World a few years ago and really just jump in head first and stay there for a couple of years, it was so great because I was like, yeah, this is the type of improv that I like to do. It's this, it's grabbing costumes. It's being a character in a costume. And so many improv people are like, oh, but that's, you know, no, that's not the way you should do it. And it's so, you know, 1998 or whatever. And I'm just like, no, it's the fucking best way to do improv. Fuck you, fuck off, hate you. No, I'm just kidding. You know, this is about acting. This isn't about jokes. That's it. It's about acting. And that really is what I was trying to say. And what resonates with me as an improv actor is acting. It's just acting. That's it. Not the game, not the, you know, the long form. I I just want to be surrounded by other actors and let's create characters and let's create scenes. That's always been the best part of improv to me. So Phil, that time when we were at Louis Pool Hall and then about to move over here to 1212 Spring, how are you fitting in in that time frame? Um, I believe I actually saw a show at Louis before I was in the troupe. Mm-hmm. And I was working at the Delju Art Group at the time. And that's oh, yeah. a place where I think one or more whole world alumni actually worked at one time. And Delju Art Group was a place where you would paint many paintings and they would be sold wholesale to hotels and stuff like that. Um, that style is right behind me on the wall right there. There's a blues instrumental painting right there that is in the style of Del Giu Art Group that I painted for my girlfriend. I recall going to a show with some people from Del Giu and like just being, you know, like, wow, this is it. And that's kind of how I got back into it. That's when I went over and decided to join uh, the jams and stuff like that because I wanted to be a part of it. And I remember joining at Louis and being cast in a couple of shows, but it wasn't long before the summer of 95. Now, Jenny and Chip, you may have to correct me on my timing on this, but I believe we moved to Spring Street at the same time Jennifer and David Webster went on their honeymoon. Yes. So we were left to put the theater together while they were in Hawaii. We actually, I... If I recall correctly. Yeah, you recall correctly. Yeah, you're there. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it was, <laughs> little Gretchen had a guy that she was seeing named Sam. I don't remember his last name, but 
he was kind of left in charge in his mind. And we were doing bitches and we were doing women behind bars. So a lot of folks left to go to David and Jennifer's wedding. And I stayed behind to run improv. And we did improv and then we had Mitchell here and he was directing us in Bitches. Women Behind Bars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were so great. They were like our parents for the summer. They were really fantastic. So we would take them to Highlander. And so at the time, I think we had broken into what's now our cafe and we were squatting in there. Call it what you want. <laughs> <laughs> And then the landlord came to us and said, do y'all want, just want to rent that space? And we were like, yeah. So that's how we acquired the cabin. Yeah, it's for art, man. It's for improv. So it was easier to just give you a lease than to get you guys out of here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we were yeah. already, so might as well. And plus, everybody loved us. Oh, yeah. You don't even understand how much everybody would come to a show and just love on us. And so we would get stuff all the time, like sweetheart deals like that. Those were the glory days, you guys. For real. (laughs) They really were. That was it. I've been recognized as far north as Maine. I'm pretty sure I peaked then. I peaked. Yeah. That was it. (laughs) I was done after that. That's when I peaked. (laughs) Oh, my God. The one thing I will never forget was uh, before we converted the space, we had built a tree in the middle of the stage and Phil was playing Puck in Midsummer Night's Dream. That was when I was like, I'm in love with Phil Cater because he is a wild child and you were just everywhere. And then we did Alice in Wonderland together. It was just so much fun. We were just doing what we wanted and and all the craziness of like, you know, actors lined up flipping Jenny like she's going through the- Yes, oh my God. Door, wow. Thomas Boyd. <laughs> Got knocked in the head by a door frame. I think it was Kane Rice that hit him. Wouldn't surprise me. And he went out to the car and got a tire iron and came in swinging that thing. I mean, it was just- Oh my God. And, and we were just, and we were young and we were doing it and it just didn't, you know, it was just such a good time. Jenny, do you remember the Caterpillar scene with yeah. Wes as the head of the Caterpillar? Yeah. Do you remember our last night? Oh yeah. Where yes. we put a real doobie in that yes. chain? Yes, I do. Oh my God. I've never dropped a line in my, okay, John, we probably need to tell this for you. Okay. The caterpillar in our version of Jabberwocky, basically, Alice in Wonderland, was Wes Kenimore at the top of a group of people. They would all sit, he would be at the top, and then other people would have their heads below him. Sort of like airplane ladder thing that we were all kind of Yeah. Yeah, it was like an airplane. Yeah, it was like a little staircase, a portable staircase we all sat on. Shout out to Steven Sisson because that was his his imagination. That was a fun show. There's going to be a ladder and this piano, which has been in three plays. You caught me, girl. Girl, you caught me, girl. You caught me, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he would be at the top. People would have their heads below him. And we would pass um, something that looked like a doobie. You know, he's supposed to be smoking instead of a hookah, a doobie. And it was like some crap you use for fake cigarettes or maybe it was real tobacco who knows we were wild baby and we were passing it up and down and that's the way it went every night until the last night and i don't know whose idea it was probably mine to say let's put a real doobie in there and we passed it up and down the chain and it was this is the first act 
closed before intermission. And so second night I came out on stage as like, I don't know if I was the Dormouse or the Mad Hatter or what the hell I was at that point, but I had never dropped a line in my entire professional career. And that day I did. I'm like sitting there. <laughs> Lance is the doormouse is talking to me about putting butter in a watch. And I'm like, ah, what? <laughs> Did I smoke any? I don't remember. I don't know, but I remember Lance was. His. Oh, well, yes, he was. He was, that really went against the grain of professionalism to him. But we were like, it's the last night. Frigate. We got backstage. I remember Lance slamming you up against the wall. I was like, oh my God. Oh, it was my idea. I bet yeah. it was my idea. I'm if sure Lance blamed me, then I'm sure I was to blame. <laughs> Of course it was you, Phil. Who else would it be? And I was dressed up like the Pepper Duchess, and I was so high. <laughs> so high. Never been high during a performance, but it was awesome. <laughs> Good times. Here does not condone use of yeah. any drugs yep. of yep. any type, not especially any during any theater Never, process. Ever. This was the 90s, the late 90s. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, I think, before the... Uh, ecstasy craze hit oh boy which went through whole Talk world about like Lance a wild pissed. oh my god he was mad just, that entire time oh my god i could just remember summer of 90s like, don't tell summer lance. of 98 it, it was like lance was mad every friggin' because <laughs> we didn't care we were just like Woo this is fun <laughs> well that's all the time we have this week next week we'll return for part two of our interview with jenny andrews and phil cater and seriously, Whole World Improv Theater does not condone the use of illegal drugs. Illegal drugs, sure. If we took away everyone's anxiety pills or antidepressants, there'd be like five people left. But on the other hand, it would give me more stage time. Thanks for listening to the Whole World Improv Podcast the rootinest tootinest podcast that's ever crossed the Rio Grande. The Whole World Improv Podcast is the production of Whole World Improv Theater in association with Headspace Industries. The executive producer, writer, and executive chef is Chip Powell. And John Mihalik does stuff. I'm not reading all those credits again, John. I think I'm just gonna... That's what you get, John. Original music by The Gentle Readers. Please help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and leaving us a review. Please. John and Chip are thinking about a segment where I'd get on the show to read to them. But it would put actual talent on the podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't even finish that through. I'm way too self-deprecating. It's never going to change. People, Kate, get more confidence. <laughs> Getting up there and uh, it's not, it's not going to happen at this point. Think, sorry. Just, you guys are gonna have to live with my annoying. Oh, I, I suck all the time. <laughs> Whole World Improv Theater is a 501c3 nonprofit theater. Please support by donating at our website, wholeworldtheater.com. And remember again, it is tax deductible. So if you give, it's like you're a rich person who's always evading taxes. Additional writing and voiceover from me, Kate Arlo, and I like to move it, move it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. I'm going to go work out. All right, I'm not. Well, I'm going to work out. All right, I'll see y'all later. Bye. Bye.